You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, located in Strasburg, Pennsylvania. You can learn more about us by visiting oakhillfellowship.com or finding us on social media. Now grab a Bible, a notebook, and get ready to be spiritually enriched by the Word of God. Okay, you ready? Uh, let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you can totally get one at the welcome table, or you could probably go to your app store on your phone right now and get one too. Um, amazing how technology works. But open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. I'm going to start out by reading God's Word this morning. Peter writes to believers who are scattered all over uh, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Um, he writes this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So as I was reading that passage and thinking about uh, these words that Peter uses to describe the believers, sojourners and exiles, or some translations might have uh, strangers and aliens, uh, I was just thinking about the different times when I felt like a stranger or an alien uh, when I was traveling in other cultures in other parts of the world. Uh, and it's interesting, depending on where you go, uh, people have different perceptions of Americans. I'm not sure if you were aware of that or not. Uh, but so in uh, 2005 or six, I went to Japan. In 2015 or 16, I went to the Philippines. And in both of those places, they have a rather high perception of Americans. It's actually kind of like a, a cool thing to talk to Americans. And so like we were almost like the the drawing point. Oh, come talk to an American and then hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, that was kind of the way that that, that went. Uh, so that was way different than when I went to Europe in 2004. And I remember our uh, our professor, I went with college, and uh, our professor who was preparing us for that trip was like, um, I want you to be careful because in most parts of Europe, Americans are viewed as loud and obnoxious. And, and I was thinking like, I don't really get that. I mean, like, some of my friends are loud and obnoxious, but, like, you know, Americans in general, we're not loud and obnoxious, right? And so so I just kind of tucked that in my back pocket, and I went to Europe. And we were on a train uh, to Berlin, I believe, and um, and it was a rather long train ride that day, and, you know, we were getting all antsy and got a little bit rowdy, and, and so we start being a little loud, and all of a sudden I look around and realize that we are the only ones being loud and obnoxious, and, uh, and I was just like, you know what, there it is. Like, like whether it was true or not, the, the stereotype was confirmed. And here's the lesson that I learned that day. The goodness of our homeland is perceived by how we act 
in a foreign land. The goodness of our homeland is perceived by how we act in a foreign land. Whether that's it's true or not, whether that's true of the goodness of the homeland or not, it's perceived that way. And so as we study First Peter, uh, Peter is reminding us that, that if Jesus Christ is our salvation, if our faith is in Him for our salvation, if we are born again to a living hope, then what that means is that this place right here is not our true home. This world is not our home. We are made for eternity. We are citizens of heaven, but we are traveling the places of earth. And so while most of us have lived in this area for a long time, uh, some of us all of our lives, um, the United States, South Central Pennsylvania, Solanco, Southern York County, Southern Chester County, wherever you call home, wherever your address is, uh, that is your temporary residence. So as we live in this society, as we live in this culture, we need to realize that the goodness of our homeland, heaven, is perceived by how we live in this foreign land. So here's the big idea for today. Contribute goodness to earthly society so that God will be glorified. Contribute goodness to earthly society so that God will be glorified. So verse 11, where we're starting today, uh, is a turning point in the letter of 1 Peter. Peter is moving from the doctrinal section of this letter uh, now into some very practical applications of that doctrine. Uh, Practically speaking, how does the hope of eternity change our lives on earth? That's the whole reason we're studying this letter of 1 Peter, is that we would allow the living hope of Jesus Christ that has changed us to really change our lives on earth. And so this thing is going to get more and more practical as we go along. Some of you are like, whew, yes, good. Like, let's get our heads out of the clouds and let's get the the rubber to the road. Um, How does this truth that we are born again change the way that we view our activity in our workplaces, in our marriages, in the public square? How does Peter's call and God's call to be holy as God is holy and to be obedient children who crave and long for His Word, how does that play out in a world that doesn't understand the ways of God? For the last two sermons in this study, we've been talking about how we as believers are to be a hope-filled loving community. And so today we're going to ask, like, what is the relationship between that community of believers, the church, and the rest of society? And Peter answers that question by basically saying, uh, we need to be ones who contribute goodness to society so that God will be glorified. Today from this passage, we're going to consider four foundational mindsets that we need to have. Four shifts in thinking that that some of us might need to make in order to really be able to contribute goodness the way that God calls us to. And then we're going to look at four practical ways at the end that we are called to contribute goodness to society. So first, uh, four foundational mindsets. The first mindset is found there in verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Here's mindset number one. 
my primary war is with my own sinful desires, not the culture or society. My primary war is with my own sinful desires, not the culture or society. So as Peter starts out talking about how God's chosen and holy people are to relate to an earthly society, he he gives the church this charge. He, He begins by reminding them of who they are. Verse 11 starts by this word, beloved. It's not a word that we use a whole lot anymore, right? But but this is a a tender address. It's like saying, loved ones, family. I'm telling you this because I'm concerned for you. I, I want you to know how much I love you in this statement that I'm about to make. Loved ones, I urge you. I urge you. So that's a, a really strong word in the original. Like, urge is almost too weak. Like, he's about to make more than a suggestion here. He's about to make a plea based on his love for them. Loved ones, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. So that takes us back to the very first verse of the letter uh, where Peter says that he's writing to elect exiles of the dispersion. We said that these people are not in political exile. They're, they're not cast away from their homes necessarily. Uh, this was probably primarily a Gentile church based on the way that Peter talks to them. And uh, there's really no evidence in history that Rome cast any Gentile Christians away from their earthly homes, away from the places where they grew up. And so this is much less of a, a political or a physical exile, and it's much more about a spiritual exile. They're strangers, sojourners, aliens in a spiritual sense. They're citizens of heaven inhabiting the places of earth. And so, what is Peter so desperate for these beloved exile believers to understand? Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. I find it so interesting what he doesn't say here. He doesn't, as he's getting ready to help us live in a foreign hostile society, he doesn't say, Beloved, I urge you to abstain from interacting with that heathen culture that is at war with you. He doesn't say, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from giving any ground to the culture that wants to take over your government and trample over your rights. He doesn't say that. He says we are to abstain from the passions of our flesh which wage war against our soul. It's the passion of my flesh. It's my own sinful nature that is a greater threat than the culture to my ability to demonstrate goodness in society. Let me say that again. It's the passions of the flesh. It is my own sinful nature that is a greater threat to my ability to demonstrate goodness in society rather than the culture. So, I've created this little diagram here to show how our mindset affects how we interact in society uh, based on how we view the primary war for goodness. It's also there in your notes. The reality is, like it or not, in the last 50 years or so, uh, American cultural norms have shifted drastically away from conservative values where we find ourselves comfortable, right? 
I mean, we just had a, a story, like, right there, right? Like, what Sarah shared earlier was a perfect example of that. Uh, America has proven that it's not the Christian nation that everybody thought that it was. So really, there's, there's no such thing as a Christian nation in this age, by the way. Remember, like, God chose the church, right? And, and people from every nation and tribe and tongue and language, and he didn't choose a specific nation to represent him. And so as Christianity becomes less and less popular in our nation, especially in popular culture and political culture, American Christians have engaged in what are known as the culture wars. Have you ever heard the term culture wars before? Uh, Christians often view themselves at war with the culture, trying to change culture, trying to win over culture, trying to maintain a moral majority in society. And so they don't want to feel like sojourners and aliens in the earthly culture where they live. They, they want to feel at home in this place. They want to feel like this is comfortable and cozy and, and, and everything that we always wanted it to be. That utopian society of heaven that we're waiting for. We want that now. And so the culture wars have built, been built on the idea that if only Christians can gain a foothold in industries or organizations that have what we think is a big impact on society, then we can, quote-unquote, win back the culture. We can restore our prominence. We can maintain our moral majority. We can have a pretty comfortable life as Christians. The problem is, it's just not how it works. It's just not how God has set this thing up. God didn't call us to win the culture generally. He called us to win the war for souls specifically. Real life, human people that we talk to face to face every day. Culture is simply a product of real life people expressing their hearts, usually sinful hearts, together. That's what culture is. It's a product. And certainly it feeds back into itself, but it's a byproduct of sin. And so instead of trying to affect people personally, we try to affect culture generally. So we place our hope in politicians who label themselves as Christian regardless of any moral track record. And we place our hope in Christian celebrities. And as soon as some celebrity says, I'm a Christian, we're like, all over that person, you know? And like they're going to be our hope. They're going to they're going to infiltrate the entertainment business and before we know it Hollywood's going to be making all Christian movies. And we measure the success of American Christianity by how many victories we win in the Supreme Court. And listen, I, I am not saying, I'm not saying that it is wrong to be a Christian in the entertainment industry or in the government and to use your influence, whatever influence God has given you, to impact culture in a positive way. I'm not saying that it's not good to vote your conscience when you go to the booth and to try to use that democratic right that we have been given in this society, this very unique society, to try to influence the culture towards goodness. That can be a way that we contribute goodness. But listen, as a mindset, as a mindset, American Christians often view their primary battle as a war with the culture out there rather than the sins that are in here. And that leads to a, a, a battle for the morality of society in the public sphere rather than in the personal sphere. 
There's another reaction, but it's really a similar mindset. Kind of on the other side of this triangle here, that's equally opposed to Peter's heart in this letter, it's to uh, retreat from society altogether. And so we respond to society by creating our own subculture. We create our own Christian bubble. And, and that never engages the culture at large because we don't want the culture to influence us. Ultimately, it creates a mindset that the culture is bad and we are good. And it's really a mindset of self-righteousness that, that I'm going to be good as long as those people out there don't influence me too much. Like, I've got it going on here, so i just got to keep them away. And that mindset will actually keep you from Peter's vision in this letter. It's a mindset that says that our primary battle is a war with culture rather than the sins that are in here. And when we have that mindset, we can't contribute goodness to the culture. And we'll also fail to pursue goodness ourselves because what's going to happen is our sin's going to sneak up on us. It comes up from the inside. It doesn't come from the outside. It comes up from the inside. Do you ever struggle with either of those mindsets? Where you think, it would be a whole lot easier for me to be good if the culture wasn't so bad. If we can only change the culture. If I could only change the influences in my workplace and in my neighborhood and in our government and in our entertainment industry, then I could be good. Honestly, I, I, I can find it easy to fall into those mindsets. But if we have that mindset with either of those two reactions, it's going to keep us from contributing to the society for the glory of God. I find it interesting with both of these reactions. Uh, I see very few churches shut their doors because they failed to gain influence in the government or sway the culture of the entertainment industry. And I haven't seen the rate of churches closing or splitting decrease in, in those who run away from culture either. But I see plenty of churches have to close their doors because they didn't pay attention to the battle of the sinful desires that were in their own hearts. I see plenty of churches that were self-righteous regarding the culture who died because sin and pride led them to infighting. And they split and they gave up. Sin ate them alive from the inside out. And so can you understand Peter's urgency here now? Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. He loves them so much. So He's calling us to a third way. He's calling us to, to live in a society with a supernatural goodness to bring the goodness of the culture of heaven into the places of earth. But before we can do that, we're going to have to adopt this mindset. My primary war is with my own sinful desires, not the culture or society. It's not a fight out there. It's a fight in here. And sure, there's things in the culture that are going to arouse my sinful desires. Right? There's things that I'm going to be tempted to. There are things in the culture that I as a Christian have no business participating in because I belong to a different family. But the ultimate problem, the ultimate thing that I need to do something about is my heart. 
That's why I need the gospel so much, right? Our only hope for contributing goodness to society, our only hope to show our culture a foretaste of heaven is a good and perfect Savior who will transform my heart by His goodness as I learn to rely on Him by faith. That's the only hope. That's the only hope. When we see our primary battle as a battle with our own sin, we cling to the gospel. And then we're able to deliver that gospel effectively to the world. Even as we believe the the good news of Jesus, even as we become citizens of a heavenly kingdom, uh, born again into a new family, we still have passions of our flesh warring against our soul. We still have remaining sin. And so if you're going to live effectively in earthly society as citizens of heaven, you need to be aware of your own flesh. You need to be aware of where you're prone to attack. You need to be aware of sin and how it's affecting you and how to fight it. You need to constantly confess sin and get it out into light and deal with it. So, so that may look like not participating in some of the things that your coworkers are doing or your neighbors are doing. Like That may look like abstaining from some of those things. But your motive in that will not be some form of self-righteousness. It's simply because you know that your heart belongs to a different kingdom. It, it may look like you go in there, but you go in there with a ton of accountability around you. And, and you, you have people asking, you even have people with you ministering in those dark places together for the glory of God to contribute goodness to that dark place. At any rate, we won't be afraid of engaging and showing kindness to the culture We'll just be more aware of the passions of our flesh and humbly abstaining from those things because we believe in a gospel that saved us from them. See, Peter's not calling us to disengage from society. He's not causing, calling us to wage war with, with society. He's causing us, calling us to wage war with our own sinful passions as we interact with supernatural goodness. So there's really no break in thought here between verses 11 and 12. In the original, it's all one sentence. Your your Bible probably puts a period in there, but it's, uh, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Uh, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. By the way, when Peter says Gentiles here, uh, he's referring to everyone who's not a follower of Jesus, the Messiah. He's referring to the society of, at large among whom these believers are scattered. That's what he means by Gentiles. So our primary war is not with our own sinful passions, so that we can contribute and demonstrate goodness in society. Here's mindset two. My good deeds promote God's glory even in a hostile society. My good deeds promote God's glory, even in a hostile society. So, Peter pictures these believers intermixed amongst the culture of their day, kind of like air fresheners in the trash can of Oscar the Grouch. Okay? You know Oscar, right? Like on Sesame Street, like like he hated anything that smelled good, anything that was pretty, right? But they were they were still air fresheners. If anybody else was around, they were like, "Yes, this actually smells way better than Oscar's trash can," right? 
And so some people might not like us. Some people will try to dismiss us and cast us aside and say that we're evil and say that we're harmful, but our conduct should be so honorable, so good, that those accusations won't be able to stick with the average person. We who have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead have a corner on the market for what is truly good. We know the one who is good. We're citizens of heaven who have been changed by God Himself to be air fresheners in a society where sin often smells like a trash can, even to them. Like, like they don't like seeing, you know, the world doesn't like seeing the cesspool of their sin either. They, they realize how broken this whole thing is too. So Peter says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. That word honorable is really the same root word as good when he says good deeds. Keep it honorable do, by doing good deeds, by doing honorable things. It refers to an intrinsic moral goodness. Things that are almost always considered good. Things that are held in high regard to almost every human being. Focus on doing those things. Peter acknowledges that there are some in society who are going to call some things evil that are, in fact, good. Uh, So in Peter's day, uh, Christians were actually accused with the label of haters of the human race. Is that... Ever sound familiar, honestly? Like, like that's the way that society views us sometimes. Haters of the human race. Here's why. It's because they went against some of the societal norms in Rome. And they believed that Jesus was coming again to judge the earth with fire. And they're like, you can't tell us that. You hate us if you tell us that God is going to judge us. And, and they believed that they should share their faith aggressively and they were gaining fast influence and it was making the Romans worried. And they, they advocated worshiping only one God instead of worshiping many gods in Roman society that, were, that was thought to be essential for maintaining peace and order. Does it sound familiar? It sounds so, so familiar. There's not very much different at all between Rome and the reasons that the Christians there were despised, and the reasons that we are despised today. Peter's like, some are going to call you evildoers. So don't live up to the charge. Instead, demonstrate honorable, intrinsic goodness. Peter's acknowledging that while there are definitely points of contention about what is good and what is evil, there are still these general areas of agreement and followers should be lead, followers of Jesus should be leading the charge in those areas of goodness. So taking care of the needs of a neighbor might be one example of good deeds that are generally seen as honorable in society. No, nobody's going to really think that that was a bad deed, right? Standing up for somebody who's vulnerable and weak. Maybe somebody who's a, a victim of abuse. We're seeing all sorts of abuse come out in the church, uh, in the news about the church, right? Like, are we speaking up and saying, no, no, not here, not anywhere, it's not right. And then coming around those victims and loving on them. How about uh, loving your spouse and speaking well of them 
That, that's actually still seen as a good thing, right? Like even as the culture's idea of marriage breaks down, they still love the couple who's still in love with each other. Working hard at your job. Obeying the law. Being foster parents or adopting children. These are all areas of good deeds that the world is watching to see if we're going to live them out. And Peter says that it must be our goal that they see our good deeds and then glorify God on the day of visitation. So we're not flaunting our good deeds for ourselves. We're just doing our good deeds in a way that is visible so that God receives glory. Our good deeds are noticed over time and, and they're going to be remembered by some in whom God is working. This, this idea of, of the day of visitation, some people think that it's the, the end of all things that they're going to see and glorify God. Uh, there's really no article there, so that word the is not there in the original, so it could be just a day of visitation, and I, I tend to think that that's what it is, that there's going to be some day in some of their lives when God shows up and He opens their eyes to see who He truly is, and they're going to be like, that's why they were so good. Glory be to God. I get it. And they're going to glorify Him for the way that He used you to see their goodness. And when that day of visitation comes, we're going to get to celebrate with them and glorify God with them. One of the ways that I've seen this play out in my own life, uh, just kind of reflecting on this today, because we were with them yesterday to celebrate some birthdays, uh, when, I, when I was... Tw- um, in college, my parents took in a, a 24-year-old woman who was pregnant and about to be homeless. And um, she, she lived with my family for a few months, and then they got her an apartment, and, uh, and they helped her find a job. And um, over that period of time, she just became very close to our family. And so we, uh, we call her sister today, and, um, and they call her daughter, and she calls them mom and dad. And uh, it's, it's just a, a really fun thing. Um, and so that was uh, 13 years ago, that, that little girl that she was pregnant with, uh, she had a week later, and she just turned 13 last week. Uh, that was pretty cool to celebrate her birthday. But, but my family over those 13 years was so steadfast to her. Um, they, they just kept loving her, kept showing goodness to her. They spoke the truth very often. They told her where they stand. There were some drop-down, drag-out fights for sure. Uh, they didn't do it perfectly, uh, but they loved her thoroughly, and they showed incredible grace and long-suffering, and uh, it's, it's a situation where many people would have given up many times over. And so for a long time, she professed faith in Jesus, but no real change until about a year ago. And God visited her. I mean, God visited her. And, and the change that we've seen over the last year in her life compared to the first 12 that we knew her, is out of this world. Literally supernatural, out of this world change. And she's attending church regularly. She's actively turning from sin. She's in the Word. She talks about Jesus every time that you're with her. And sometimes you're like, is this real? Like, is this real? Hasn't, hasn't stopped yet. It's amazing. And listen, she still has a lot of mess in her life. But she saw the goodness of people who love Jesus. 
But then God visited her. And she learned to glorify Him. Isn't that what you want? For God to receive more and more glory from more and more people and to use you as a tool in that process. Isn't that an incredible experience that you could participate in? Listen, listen. my dad is the furthest person from anybody who would have ever done anything like that. Like, like he, he was overly cautious and stingy. and you probably get in trouble if he hears this. But God changed him in the process. Totally changed him. And he can, he can use you. As we carry a gospel that changes people, we must show the way that it changed us. And so how do we express goodness that the world will understand? What what are some basic areas of goodness that are going to bring glory to God? Uh, Really, that's the the whole next section of this letter of 1 Peter is talking about. Uh, But Peter starts out talking here about human institutions generally and then human governments specifically. Verse 13, he says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So here's mindset number three. Uh, My goodness is expressed in part through submitting to the human institutions that God has created for society. My goodness is expressed in part through submitting to the human institutions that God has created for society. Peter says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. For this is the will of God. Peter's talking about human institutions with God-ordained purposes. He's going to mention a a few institutions. Here he mentions government. Uh, Then he's going to talk about the slavery situation that was going on in that day. You can come back next week for that. and then uh, he talks about he's going to talk about marriage. That'll be what we talk about in two weeks. Uh, and so God has ordained each of these relationships to have a specific purpose where we show His goodness to an earthly society. He's ordained each of them with a, an authority and a responsibility structure. He's ordained each of them with limitations to that authority. He's ordained them for the sake of order in society. Now, that does not mean that they are perfect. Like, each of them is filled with fallen, very fallen human beings. And so they are for sure not perfect. Governments experience corruption. Work relationships experience oppression. Marriages experience abuse. But the institutions are still God's creation. And the Christian who realizes that should be striving after God's ideals for the role that they play within society. Uh, Peter's going to say that Christian wives should strive after God's ideal as a wife despite her husband's limitations. And Christian husbands should strive for God's ideal as a husband despite his wife's limitations and shortcomings. 
Slaves and masters should seek the best possible relationship within a design that wasn't great and wasn't perfect, but fulfilling God's design for work within that cultural context. And in governments, citizens or subjects should live out good and orderly lives according to the laws of the government. When we submit to human institutions, we're submitting to God's plan for order and goodness and flourishing in human society. So Peter instructs them to be subject to the emperor. Now the emperor at the time that Peter is writing is Nero. If you know anything about history and you know that name Nero, you should just be like, just go ahead and do that for a second. Right. Nero is not a nice dude. Especially to Christians. Now now this isn't quite to the point where he's gone into full-fledged hatred like, like... in a couple years after writing this letter, the city of Rome is going to have this big fire, and so he's going to use Christians as a scapegoat, and he's going to be like, it was all the Christians' fault, and let's just kill them all. And, and, um, and yet, that hatred for Christians didn't just come out of nowhere. Like, he didn't wake up on the morning after, after the fire and be like, I should blame this on the Christians. I don't know. I never hated them before. No, he's always hated them. Nero sees Christians as a threat. And yet Peter says, be subject to the emperor as supreme, or to governors sent by him. That was the whole system of his day. Emperor, and then governors who carried out the emperor's wishes in far-off territories like the places that this letter was traveling. So Peter gives this purpose then for the emperor and and his governors. Uh, Their job is to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. That that is generally God's design and role for the government in human society. Now, governments don't always get that distinction right, uh, but that is the God-ordained purpose for why they exist. And as citizens of a different kingdom, we need to demonstrate God's goodness by seeking the fulfillment of that purpose by living upright lives in the governments that He has ordained. We submit to God by submitting to those governments as least as, at least as far as they don't violate, cause, cause us to violate God's specific given will for us. And in our society, uh, that's rare, to be honest. It's rare. We think that it happens all the time, but we're just usually overreacting. It's rare that we're actually called to violate God's will by the government so far. And so Peter says that this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. These are the same people uh, calling Christians evildoers up in verse 12. See, they had all these kind of foolish, crazy ideas about what Christians were like. So some, uh, some of the Romans actually thought that Christians were cannibals. Why would they think that Christians are cannibals? Think about it. They, they eat bread that they call a body, and they drink a cup that they call blood. They're cannibals. We, we don't understand these people. They're cannibals. Some thought that they were troublemakers because of the ways that the Jews responded to the message. Like, who really was the troublemakers, right? Can you relate to that? Like, like are Christians ever misunderstood Peter says, prove those people to be foolish. Just be a good citizen. 
be a, a model of goodness in society. It was of extremely high value to the Romans to maintain order in society by everyone playing their proper role in human institutions. And so if they could look at Christians and say, uh, you help us keep order in society, then we good. We're good. Like, like, we won't bother you at all. They didn't bother the Jews because of the same thing. That was all they cared about. And so, so they would circulate these texts these household texts that, that would outline how Roman citizens were to live in an orderly way in society. We've talked about these in our first principles class. Anybody remember that? These, these household texts. And so Peter is adopting, actually, right here in this letter, he's adopting a Roman form of writing to show, hey, we need to be good citizens just like Rome wants us to be, but we should do that for the Lord. Not just for Rome. We should follow His design, not just Rome's design. We do it as submitting to the Lord and promoting His glory and His, and His goodness that He's produced in our lives. My goodness is expressed in part through submitting to human institutions God created for society. But at the same time, we also have to realize that our identity transcends earthly society. Look at verse 16. Uh, live as people who are free... Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So here's mindset number four. Uh, I am free regarding human society, but a servant in God's society. Live as people who are free. Uh, remember, Peter is identifying them as sojourners and aliens. They are visiting earthly society, but their citizenship is in heaven. So therefore, they are free citizens of heaven. They are free on the earth. And that means that the labels and restrictions of human institutions do not define them. So they may be called slaves or masters on earth, but they are all free men in the kingdom of heaven. Free men and women. They may have the status of, of Roman citizen and all the certain benefits that they have, or they may be considered property as those who have been conquered by Rome. But according to God, they are free. All of them. Not one more important than the other. Isn't that awesome? That, that human methods of attributing status and importance don't mean anything when you're a child of God. But at the same time, uh, that can make us kind of feel like we're above earthly society then, right? Like, like uh, I don't have to pay taxes. I'm a citizen of heaven. Guess what? That doesn't fly with the IRS. Like They, they don't have that uh, exemption in their but in their laws. And there may be other circumstances in which we'd be tempted to, to run down that line of thinking. But, but while I'm free regarding human society, I am a servant of God. I'm a representative. I'm an ambassador in an earthly society. So like it or not, people are going to judge the kingdom of God by the way that they see me serve Him. And I'm called to contribute goodness to society so that God will be glorified, so that He will be well represented. Now those are the mindsets. Now, Peter, can you please give me some specifics of what this would look like? I, I think I understand the mindsets. I can keep working on those. But what does this look like when the rubber meets the road? And so Peter gives us four ways we must contribute goodness to society. Four ways. And he just gives them to us in, in bullet point format. Boom, 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 boom. Command after command after command. Uh, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. 
fear God, honor the emperor. You could fill out your whole outline right now. Honor everyone. That's where he begins. This is a different word than honorable or good before. It means to show respect. To give recognition. So Peter is calling us to be respectful of everyone. Everyone. So, so who is not included in everyone? No one, right? No one is not included in everyone. Anyone convicted by that? So we may wildly disagree with them. We may know for a fact that their opinions are an abomination to the Lord. We may despise their actions, but we must still respect them. Look, I'm just so blessed by that testimony earlier. That, that yes. Honor everyone. This is a sign of recognizing our own inadequacies before God. See, the gospel that we carry believes that we are wretched, undeserving sinners before God intervened. Our gospel declares that we were created in the image of God and then we just defaced His image with our sin. We became blind to God's goodness. We traded the truth for a lie and couldn't even tell what was true anymore. So God stepped in and saved us and He sent Jesus to take our place and to pay for our sin. And He's the one who conquered our sin and who conquered death on our behalf. And it is only when God opens our eyes to believe in Him that we can be saved. We aren't saved because we got smart enough and figured it out on our own. We are saved because God took a dead, hopeless, foolish sinner and caused them to be born again to a living hope by making them alive with Christ. That's all that we got. I contributed deadness. That's what I contributed to my salvation. The gospel humbles us and it helps us honor the image of God created in every human being. It helps us see that we're all in need of grace. It helps us understand that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And so we can honor everyone. Unfortunately, Christians do not have a great record in that area. The general perception of Christians is that we're condescending, holier than thou, hypocrites. And sometimes that shoe fits, sometimes it doesn't, right? But let's seek to change the perception in the lives of the people around us. And, and, and we may not be able to change the perception of the culture at large, but we can seek to make sure that the people around us think of Oak Hill Fellowship Church as a place that is different than that. We can seek to be humble and we can point out beauty and goodness everywhere we see it. And, and I understand, I understand that that is not a guarantee that everybody is going to get that. They're, they're not all going to understand that. They're not all going to see that. They're just going to be, have their blinders on. They're going to stick their fingers in their ears and they're going to call you whatever they want to call you. But as far as it concerns us, in our own hearts, honor everyone. Honor the image of God that He created in people despite their sin. Be respectful of people whom God created simply because He created them. Watch how you talk about and talk to people in the world. 
talk about sin carefully, not denying that it is a sin, but also not denying that you too are a sinner. Seek to believe the best about the motives of people who think differently than you. Assume that they have a reason for thinking the way that they do, even if the Bible would say that they are wrong. Believe me, as I read all of this, I'm just speaking to myself, okay? Seek to and listen, seek to listen and understand before stating your argument or opinion. Isn't that a way that we could show respect that would be countercultural right now? Just listen before you state your opinion. It's so true on social media. Like social media is a terrible place to have reasonable dialogue. And so if you try to engage, guard your fingers just like you would guard your tongue if you were going face to face. And nine times out of ten, that means you're not going to type what you were about to type. Honor everyone. Secondly, love the brotherhood. So Peter draws a distinction here. Everyone gets honor. Everyone gets respect. But there is a special love within the Christian community because we are a family to one another. It's not that we don't love the world. God so loved the world. We should too. It's not that we don't love our enemies. We need to love our enemies, right? But there is a special kind of love that exists between brothers and sisters in Christ. And that love takes priority every time. Like, like you guys are my peeps. You, you guys are my family. We, we share this common distinction as sojourners and exiles. And so we're out there in the world all week, all long, uh, all week long. And, and then we come here together and we're like, oh man, this feels so good to be with people who get me. If we're going to be weird in society, let's be weird together. That creates a love between us like no other. And so we've been talking about this the last few weeks. Our call within the church is to love one another earnestly because we've all been born again by the same imperishable Word of God. This is the family that you will have forever. And I believe that this is something God's declaring loudly to our church right now. You need to double down on your love for one another. Double down. Go the extra length to show one another love. Love one another earnestly. That means getting out of our homes, getting out of our spheres of comfort, getting out and loving one another earnestly, even as we show love to the world. This is one of the ways that God shows His goodness to society. Jesus said that, you will, that the world will know that you are My disciples by the love you have for one another. And so when we lean into love within the church, the world sees a supernatural family. They see God's goodness in the way that we care for one another. They see His goodness in the way that we forgive each other and forbear grievances and hang in there with annoyances. Society will see God's goodness in the way that we love the brotherhood. Third, Peter says, fear God. And at first, that may seem out of place. Fear God, like everything else seems to be horizontal, right? But remember, they're sojourners and aliens in a world that is hostile to God. And that's scary, isn't it? It's scary to be there. These early Christians are about to face some intense localized persecution and they have to have their fears in order. If they fear society, if they fear governmental pressures, if they fear cultural pressures, they're going to cave and they're going to look more like the culture of earth than the culture of heaven. 
If they fear man more than they fear God, they're going to cease to show God's supernatural goodness to society. You see, before we can be an influence to the people around us, we must first have been impacted by God. We need to see how He is more powerful and more glorious and more worthy and superior in every way to anything else that we see in society. Before we can demonstrate goodness horizontally, we have to make sure that we see God's superior goodness vertically. Our mission in the world is to overflow from our worship in the presence of God. It's His goodness that fuels our goodness. Because we fear Him above all else. It means that we're not fatalistic. We're not hopeless in the middle of our trials. Or in our view of persecution. Or in the direction of society. We're not afraid of the direction society is going because this world is in our home. We aren't losing ground. We aren't losing the battle. Because God already won the battle at the cross and is going to have the final victory when Jesus returns again. God is in control. Not the government. God is in control, not the entertainment industry. God is in control, not our boss. And so when it comes to following God or society, we must choose God's way every time and trust that His way is perfect. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. Finally this, honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. We've actually had somebody leave our church because we taught that we should honor those in authority in government. It's a contentious issue. People don't like this. But it is one that is so clear in the Scriptures. Daniel 2.21 says that, that God removes kings and sets up kings. And we may not think highly of the person or the policies, but we ought to respect the position and the one who holds that position. Because God has put them in that position for this time and for this purpose. We don't have an emperor, right? Like last I checked, we don't have an emperor, praise the Lord. But we do have a whole governmental system that replaces him. So that means we have a whole lot more people to honor. And we need to seek to honor the roles and the people, no matter who, what political party's holding office or has majority, no matter what person maintains the power. So we're allowed to have opinions that differ. We're even allowed to have strong opinions that differ. And we're allowed to express those opinions because our democracy has given us this beautiful thing called free speech. But as servants of God, we are not allowed to disrespect or shame those in high office. We are not allowed to use our freedom as a cover-up for evil. It's interesting, the word honor here when he uses that for the emperor, he's putting the emperor on the same playing field as everyone else. And in Roman society, that would have worked this way. Like, like the emperor is not higher than everyone else. He's just on the same playing field. But I think in our society, it, it works the other way. We often think of people who hold political office as less than human. The way that we talk about them. It's like all of a sudden, now that they've entered the, the realm of politics, now we can just talk about them any way that we want. Honor everyone, including those in politics. Doesn't that make a difference from what you see? Like again, social media is such a 
place where this goes all sorts of crazy. Like if you've, if you've ever read the comments thread on a news article, just go to CNN or New York Times or anywhere. It doesn't matter. Fox News. And just click on the comments and just read the comments. Don't worry about the article. Just read the comments. Spewing hatred back and forth. Dishonor, disrespect everywhere you look. If we learn to speak honorably about those in government, we will stand out. Oh, church, we will stand out. So evaluate your words. Again, convicting. If I'm honest, my my heart attitude towards those things need to grow. I can get on a pretty good soapbox about government overreach if you give me, if you catch me on the right day, which is pretty much every day. My it's that's because my heart is often too bound up in how much the government is on my side. That couldn't have been the hope of the first century believers at all. And it's not our hope either. Our hope is a living Savior and a glorious God. And so what are the ways that your mindset needs to change? What are the ways that you see differing mindsets creep in? And what are some of the ways that you can show goodness, contribute goodness to society this week? Look at Peter's list there. And consider your actions. Make a plan for yourself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we, ask, we ask for you to uh, continue your work in our hearts as, as your word has gone forth and, and as we have to go from here now. Um, we pray that you would... Uh, you would help us to be your people who are set apart for your goodness and your glory this week. Show us where we can serve you by serving others. Help us to honor everyone. Help us to love each other and support one another. Father, help us to fear you above all things. And give us a, a supernatural speech that, that recognizes that your kingdom is higher than any of the kingdoms of this earth, including our own. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.